Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The following podcast is a member of the Great Big Owl family. This will certainly have an adult theme and might well contain strong scenes of sex or violence, which could be quite graphic. It may also contain some very explicit language, which will frequently mean sexual swear words. What do you like listening to? Um, <laughs> chart music. <laughs> chart music. Oh, fucking hell. What are you like? If you're going to do that, draw the fucking curtains at least, please. Oh, hey up, you pop crazy youngsters. And welcome to part three of episode 56 of Chart Music. I'm your host, Al Needham, in my living room. The party's in full effect. Sarah's over there on the decks laying down the dub plate pressure. And Simon, Taylor and Neil... There's no other way to put it. They're doing the bummer's conga right in front of the windows where the neighbours can see. Ugh. Anyway, let's stop fannying about because we've got a massive chunk of the 1983 Top of the Pops Christmas episode to get stuck into. So come on, sit down, let's have some analysis of you. Neil, you're not holding your mouth right, mate. Enough of me. Time for some real men. Number one in the early part of 1983. Do you remember Oz Rock and Men at Work? Smith, after he stops pretending to dance to Comrade Shaker, tells us that it's hard to be a woman, like his name was Tammy Wynette or something. Don't you think, by the way, Mike Smith in drag? A dead ringer for Patricia Routledge. Oh, you have another look. It's, it's uncanny. I know someone who used to tell people he was Patricia Routledge's son. I don't know why. Right? It was just a lie he used to what, tell. What, Sheridan. Sheridan. <laughs> no, 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 real life son. I don't know why he did it, but I think it once enabled him to get off with Julie Felix's daughter. Oh well, fair enough then. Or so she said. <laughs> But now it's time for some real men as he invites us to remember Oz Rock and introduces Dan Under by Men at Work. Formed in Melbourne in 1979, Men at Work were a pub rock band who self-financed their debut single, Key Punch Operator, and put it out on their own label in 1980. They signed to CBS Australia in early 1981, and their first single for them, Who Can It Be Now?, got to number two in Australia, while their debut LP, Business As Usual, got to number one in Australia and New Zealand. 
1982, after a year of CBS Australia nagging their parent company to give them a fair go in North America, both single and LP were put out over there. And after they supported Fleetwood Mac in Canada and the USA, both of them got to number one in America. Meanwhile, Who Can It Be Now was put out in the UK in October of 1982, but it got no higher than number 45 a month later. For the follow-up, the band decided to re-record this, which started life as the B-side of their first ever single. They perked it up and got their flautist Greg Ham to change his bit. It entered the first UK chart of the new year at number 38, then soared 31 places to number 7. And two weeks later, it battered You Can't Hurry Love by Phil Collins aside to ascend to number 1 at the end of January, making them the first Australian band to get to number 1 in the UK since the Seekers did it twice in 1965. Helped, I seem to recall, by the picture disc, which was shaped like Australia, but was a bit rubbish because there was no Tasmania on it. I think if I was a Tasmanian uh, Men at Work fan, I I would not be happy about that. Yeah, but that would have gone round and sheared the stylus off its uh, moorings. I love this. I I remember Mm -hmm. I was happy to to, um, to see this come up again. And I was kind of like, oh, it's this from, from before. And I remember it's very, it's... It's really stupid and fucking wacky. Actually, now listening to it, it's like this is a, this is a really solid. This is a really solid pop song. Um, yeah, it's mm. got. It is a bit because I was like, oh my god, it's basically quirky police. It's like a really good police mm. pastiche. Yes, but it's and he does have Colin Hay does have a little bit of a sting like inflection, which you know is is uh, yes, which is unfortunate, but. This is, it also sounds, I mean, it has that kind of Smithsy sound to it as well. We were trying to figure out what, mm. specifically which Smith song. It is a Smith song. Can't figure it out. Spent ages on it. Doesn't matter. Um, but it's got this lovely rich sound. It's got quite <laughs> sort of intimate instrumental performances and it's got, and, and that sort of arrangement, but with like this massive reverby, echoey production that is kind of slightly pointing mm. towards, you know, obviously in a couple of years time, everything is going to sound like that. But, you know, it's got that nice combination of sort of intimate and expansive, sort of like like stadium campfire. Mm. But so it, it is a little bit wacky. It's a little bit novelty. The lyrics are a little bit, you know, are a bit daft. But there is a very solid base of songwriting craft and songwriting chops carrying it. So mm. it's charming and jolly. It's melancholy and that rhymes and it. I didn't plan that. But it's um, melancholy. <laughs> melancholy. There it is. Yes. And even the even the fact that it has a line about Vegemite in it doesn't doesn't really taint it for me. Yeah, I never understood that because I would Nottingham in 1983 didn't have too many Australian shops where you could get boomerangs and, and whatnot. So I just thought it was he just smiled and gave me a bit of his sandwich. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which is it's, more or less, you know, it's, it, it it's gets the, over the, gets um, the, point across. the kindness element. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, it doesn't really matter. There's the esoteric... Um, uh, the the esoteric food reference, you know, you get the general idea. Yeah. The thing about this as well is that Colin Hay is actually uh, Scottish, and so he's sort of a, and he moved to Australia in his teens. So it it is a kind of slightly outside perspective. Oh, mm. that explains a lot, actually. Yeah, it? yeah. The other exotic food product uh, in the video is is the woman in the desert who's sat yeah, at a her. breakfast table. She's eating Vitos E or Vitos E. 
Sorry, Australians, oh, yeah. I don't know. Toasted muesli, fucking hell, what's what's going on there? Blimey! Yeah, it's um, <laughs> it's, it's great. <laughs> she's great. She does the the this terrific eye roll that you can see, even though it's like a, a mid shot, a mid distance kind of shot. Um, <laughs> mm. Yeah, um, it's it's a very because uh, she looks she looks like she's sort of come in from a Turkish delight advert of around maybe yes. around this time, maybe a bit later. Um, but so she just very Isadora Duncan. Mm. Also, um, this is one of many appearances in this episode of some PVC trousers, but they're in the desert, which is real commitment yeah, good, to wearing it? PVC trousers. <laughs> Fucking hell, that's going to be clammy when he takes them off. <laughs> <laughs> See, I tell you what saves this record from being what a lot of people vaguely imagine it to be. It's not mm. just Australian as a gimmick, right? Obviously it is Australian, but it's not just that. Like everything mm. that's good and bad about this record is a direct consequence of its Australianity. Um, <laughs> and I've mentioned this before, but most of the good art that comes out of Australia mm. is to some extent representative of the strangeness of the country, right? Yeah. And to be honest, this sort of is. I mean, for all the Barry McKenzie bollocks in the video, mm. there really is a sort of distant spookiness and disorientation to this record somehow and i'm yes. not suggesting it's picnic at hanging rock but it's <laughs> it's not a british record it's not an american record no it sounds kind of baked and bleached and actually look i'm in sympathy there i'm doing that uh, australian questioning intonation yes. i couldn't <laughs> it exists within a sort of a big wide open space and it's got that like unpretentious unseriousness coupled with a sort of unarticulated melancholy which is very Mm. australian and it's got that sort of wacky childish humor and rumbustiousness as well you know like the the stuff that annoys people about australia not pleasant (laughs) semi-civilized you know i don't mean stupid or or animal-like just you know a bit bit instinctive Running on instinct, mm. which is why Australian women are usually great fun and Australian men not always. Um, <laughs> and fair go, this is... Fair go, this Mrs is, Davidson! This is several Sorry. years before the big Australiana craze of the 80s. Yeah. In Britain and the States, right, which took different forms in Britain and the States. Yes. So they're not bandwagoning. They're the first. Come on, man. Don't coat down Joe Dolce's musical theatre. <laughs> he got there first. But yeah, you're right, Taylor. This and the Paul Hogan show being shown on Channel 4 yeah. at the end of 1982, yeah, yeah. that kicked off an interest in Australia that, that went right through the 80s, didn't it? Yeah, and grew as it went on. Uh, but I mean, yeah. Th- but this, right at the start, has already reach the point of satirising cliches mm. rather than treating them as uh, saleable novelties, you know, like uh, Crocodile Dundee and stuff, you know, which is like a step back from this. Yeah. So, you know, just because this is sort of potentially a bit annoying, it doesn't mean it's not a great record on its own terms or a good record. Probably no one in the Northern Hemisphere would consider this a truly great record. But mm. when you think about what a pile of dingo's chunder this could have been yes. right so easily it's yes. not at all it's 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 actually pretty good yeah. and and it's also better and more interesting than if it had been a love song yeah you know? um, and the only problem for them in is that it does not in any way make you remotely curious to hear any of their other songs mm. which 
for all I know, could be as good as the go-betweens or mm. the birthday party, you know, except for the one which I have heard, yes. Overkill, which was the follow-up single. And, yeah, I bet they were surprised when that wasn't another international smash hit. Mm. Like, he listened, it hasn't even got a chorus. Mm. It's almost <laughs> like they're just pissing in their own Barbie, you know, yeah. like, how are we going to follow down under? I'll tell you what, let's not. Yeah. <laughs> Who can it be now? Mm. That's a pretty decent yeah, you, song. Yeah, you must know that one. It would have sat really nicely in the charts of the Aventis. Right, yeah, yeah. And it did sound dated, but only by a couple of years. But, you know, in 1983, a couple of years is fucking, you know, decades. Yeah. Well, they got the music papers about eight months late, didn't they, in Australia? Yeah, yeah they, they, they literally did, yeah. Who Can It Be Now reminds me a little bit of um, Somebody's Watching Me. Who was that by? Rockwell. Rockwell. Yeah, no relation is, yeah. to the late George Lincoln. Yes, no. or Norman. <laughs> yeah, there is really clearly and obviously and close to the surface a certain sort of tendency to be a bit wacky, a little bit, um, mm. yeah. you know. And and with that often comes just uh, annoyance. You know, it, it's you. It's really hard to dance on that the head of that pin. But um, Overkill ended up in, and Colin Hay himself ended up being this sort of slightly irritating, wandering bard background character in mm. the uh, popular medical sitcom Scrubs. Oh, um, yes. And there's a oh. bit where he's playing Overkill on... So he sort of soundtracks the, the, the goings-on and the lives and loves of the doctors and nurses. And there's a bit where he's he's playing that. And it's quite creepy because he's um, he's quite a sort of very, very ordinary-looking, unassuming-looking bloke. And he's kind of busking on a on a bench, and then one of the, the main characters walks by, and he gets up and starts following him, and just kind of playing the song. And occasionally he'll notice him, and it's just like, can you can you fuck off? You're being annoying. And uh, and it goes it goes all the way through this kind of storyline, and the, with the song continuing. And then he's in a hospital bed, and then he's <laughs> and then he's in and then he dies, and he's oh, in no! the morgue. <laughs> he's in the morgue with like a kind of this like death face. Playing as a think about the situation, and it's he can't get to sleep. It's quite clever, but yeah, he he does he does work that line pretty well. But there's um, I I haven't heard a lot of his um, solo work, of which there is quite a lot. He's 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 had quite a long solo career post Men at Work, Um, and some of it is kind of verging on the the sentimental. But I and and a bit you know he he does sound a bit like sting unfortunately but mm. the more flattering comparison i think is like randy newman there's that slightly oh. kind of whimsical thing you can really imagine him you know soundtracking a, a pixar yeah. movie there's a song that he did called i just don't think i'll ever get over you mm. towards the end of the 90s and it goes um i drink good coffee every morning comes from a place that's far away when i'm done i feel like talking without you here there is less to say and if I live till I were 102, I just don't think I'll ever get over you. And it's so, it's it's this fucking devastating mm-hmm. um, yeah. kind of emotional. It's not just a breakup song. It's like there's real grief in it. And it's like mm. someone has died. It's like, and the, you know, and then it turns out, so I looked this up and it turns out it's about him giving up booze. Oh. It's like, it's this grief stricken sort of gentle acoustic song about how much he misses drinking because oh. he, he had a problem and it was destroying his career. So, you know, he got clean, but he he has very, very mixed feelings about it. And that's so interesting to me. Yeah. And it doesn't diminish at all. You can absolutely hear it as a breakup song or as a song about someone someone who's died. <laughs> it has 
So then, and then later on, it's like, if I live till I could no longer climb my stairs, I just don't think I'll ever get over you. I, uh, oh, my God. That is better than anything Sting wrote. Yes. Hell yeah. <laughs> yeah. Fucking hell, though, that mental image that that evokes, mm. I just, I'm I'm sorry to do it to you. Fucking hell. But, um, yeah, it, it's it's great. So he gets this new lease of life from, from giving up booze. Um, and he got a new, you know, uh, he managed to, to kind of, have a degree of success again, but never, never what he had before. So there's this kind of bit, bitter sweetness yeah, to well, it. How could you, man? I mean, they were number one for like 15 weeks in America with their album, yeah. which is insane. Yeah, 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 yeah. I don't know what the Americans saw in Men at Work, but I think the the British, we started looking at Australia and going, you know what? They're having a better life than us. And they're, they're all the fucking criminals we got rid of. And look at them. Yeah. Bastards. <laughs> And this is a time when Australia was culturally equidistant between America and Britain. Yeah. I mean, that's changed now. Australia seems to be far more Americanized yeah. than British. Yeah. But can you blame them? <laughs> I've got a very sweet tooth for 80s Australiana music videos because it seems like they just let anyone have a go at making singles back then. So via the video playlist, I just want to point the uh, the pop craze youngsters towards Girl on the Wall by Jane Clifton, who was Margot Gaffney in Prisoner Cell Block H. Nice. There's a cameo appearance by Dor, uh, who's massively pregnant. <laughs> I Only Take What's Mine by Warwick Kappa, who was the hoddle and waddle of Australian rules football. <laughs> and in particular, I'm an individual by his nemesis, Mark Jacko Jackson, who was the entire Wimbledon FC squad of Aussie rules football. Oh, right. Fucking remarkable documents. <laughs> I look forward to that. I, I think it's a sentiment. I, 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 look at, I look at things like Down Under, and it reminds me a lot of... Something else that was going on in 1982, 1983, Alvida's own pet. The song Sentiments essentially said, look, if you're Australian, wherever you go around the world, you'll never be able to get away from other Australians. But it doesn't matter because we're all fucking mint and skill. <laughs> so you look at it and you just feel a bit, you know, oh, a little bit jealous. What, mint and skill? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Anything else to say about this? Yeah, let me read out the rest of my notes, oh, word for word. Jumbuck, funnel web, upper gum tree, points-based immigration system, swagman, kookaburra, seven-foot-tall barman in London. Yes. Uh, Norman Gunston, Gunston. Slim Dusty, Top Dog, Wagga Wagga, missing episodes of Doctor Who. Would you want to be Australian? Because in some ways it doesn't look. Yeah, much but, fun. yeah, but this is that's, this is a British person asking the fucking question. Yeah, I know. Yeah, I'm not saying it, I'm not saying it's worse. I'm saying I don't know. I would like the unselfconsciousness and the opportunities to be uncomplicated when you want yeah, to be. Yeah, right? yeah. and it, I don't know. Maybe not at this point in time. I think 1983 yeah. in Australia wasn't i mean there's a reason why all gay and, and lesbian australians were in london in 1983 um and i hear it's still a bit like that in places like queensland mm. you know but uh, how ironic <laughs> and also the latter day stereotype of australians being fit and healthy and attractive doesn't seem to have have, have happened by this point either no. 
Um, I still don't understand why they're so fucking sporty, by the way. Mm. It's like 100 degrees <laughs> in March. Yeah. It's like, well, it's that hot in Britain. You can't even get to the fridge and back. <laughs> you know I mean? Never mind 200 laps around Lassiter's or the Wentworth Detention Centre perimeter fence. You know? <laughs> I mean, I, I think if I was in Australia, I wouldn't even go outside with that selection of psychopathic yeah. yeah. Never mind in shorts. <laughs> Walking around in shorts with those leaping spider killers, you know. And what they call thongs, which is not thongs for your ass, it's thongs for your feet, mate. What? Yeah, just, <laughs> just I can't get my head around that. Thongs, flip flops. Oh right. Oh, yeah. they walk around wearing those things with like murderers an inch from the, their toes. <laughs> yes. You know, they all look like rocks as well. They're like things that are not only deadly to you in in like they they will you know the deadliest creatures in the world that also just resemble stones. Yeah, like there's a type of fish that will fuck you up forever, mm. and it just and you'll never know it's there, and it's very grumpy, and it doesn't want to be stepped on. <laughs> yeah. Oh God. Have you ever seen that that film of the kangaroo trying to break into someone's house through the window? No. Yeah. Yeah. It's right. It's put. It's yeah, on yeah, YouTube. Yeah. It, it's just an Australian bloke in his house. And he's oh, I'm, I'm so his... glad we chose not to patronise men at work in this conversation. <laughs> <laughs> he's filming it on his phone, and this kangaroo comes right up to the window, and it looks like fucking Satan. It's like a yeah, yeah, medieval yeah. wood. They are cut. terrifying. It's like if you got a devil's head and stuck it on the torso of a UFC fighter <laughs> and then put that <laughs> on some some incredibly powerful piston-like legs with razor-sharp claws on the end. And this Aussie bloke, he's filming it on his phone. He just goes, oh, you, don't scratch my window. <laughs> These fucking weirdo, unruffleable cunts. <laughs> That's what I envy. That's what I envy, just, you know. Yeah. And, the, and the, although the kangaroo does undermine its own fear factor, when it sees its own reflection in the glass and tries to chest barge it and just bounces yeah, yeah, back yeah, off the yeah. window and does like a, a perfect Norman Wisdom comedy stumble <laughs> backwards. Uh, but yeah, put it on the video. I'll tell you what, something else to put on the video playlist. An Australian of our acquaintance, uh, Andrew Muller, oh, yes. is obsessed with the, this Australian TV ad for Mick Humphreys, a yes. TV driving school. You know this, right? That should Where, have been a fucking number one in this country. Yeah. It should have been the B-side of this. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Mick Humphreys will teach you to drive a big truck. Big truck. And a cherry picker. Cherry picker. <laughs> <laughs> so, Down Under would spend three weeks at number one before giving way to Too Shy by Kajagoogoo. Our British manliness dealt with it in the end. <laughs> the follow-up, Overkill, would get to number 21 in May and they'd have two more hits in the lower 30s in 1983 with It's a Mistake and Dr. Heckle and Mr. Jive. But they'd never trouble the UK top 40 again and split up in 1986. In 2009, an Australian music quiz show called Spicks and Specs suggested that the bits that Greg Ham had added to the remake of Down Under bore a similarity to a nursery rhyme written in 1932 called Cookaburra Sits in the Old Gum Tree, which encouraged the owners of the publishing rights to sue the band for plagiarism. 
After a judge ruled in favour of the publishing company, they demanded between 40 and 60% of all royalties from the song backdated to 1981, which a court case knocked down to 5% of all royalties backdated to 2002, which was still estimated to be a six-figure sum and led to lead singer Colin Hay claiming that the stress from the case were linked to the deaths of his father and Greg Ham, who died from a heart attack in 2012. Fucking hell. Horrendous. Yeah. I, we used to sing that at school. I hadn't realised that was the same one, but it is. Gookaburra sits in an old gum tree, something, something else, something else since he. Mm. Um, I would not have put those two together, but there you go, the lawyers did. No. Mm. Those number ones, Bonnie Tyler, number one in this country and in the United States too, with a superb song, Total Eclipse of the Heart. Peebles, in absolute no-nonsense mode, tells us about a superb song that bestraddled the Atlantic, like that album cover by the bloke everyone used to compare the singer to, Total Eclipse of the Heart by Bonnie Tyler. Can I just point something out um, about Andy Peebles? Yeah, Probably not going to mean a whole... A whole lot to the uh, to the listeners, but I was trying to figure out who it is that it reminds me of, other than um, a, a gangster impersonator who's fallen on hard times, or <laughs> someone who'd be arrested for running a brothel in an early episode of The Bill. <laughs> and it is erstwhile melody maker editor Mark Sutherland. I d- like it's uh, Taylor. I guess this was sort of after your time, wasn't it? But I just, I he was he was kind of giving me a bit of a shiver, and it's because I was expecting him to go right, people. Editorial meeting. Yeah. Like, I don't expect him to introduce something that I'm actually going to enjoy. <laughs> it's not It's not strictly uh, after my time. It's more that that was a cue for my time to end, <laughs> I decided. Born in Skewen, near Swansea, in 1951, Gaynor Hopkins began her career when she came second place in a talent contest at the age of 18 and supplemented her income as an assistant at a grocery shop by becoming a backing singer for the local band Bobby Wayne and the Dixies and then forming her own soul band called Imagination. Or can you imagine if uh, Bonnie Tyler was in imagination? That'd be interesting. There's an alternate universe where that happened and it's probably better than this one. Mm. She'd be called Bonnie. (laughs) (laughs) Extra exciting, I stead (laughs) (laughs) Not wanting to be confused with Mary Hopkin, she changed her name again to Shireen Davis. In 1975, she was spotted at a gig in the Townsman's Club in Swansea by a talent scout who invited her to London to record a demo, and a few months later, she was signed up to RCA on the condition that she get rid of that shit name and have a new one. And this time, she went for Bonnie Tyler. Her debut single, My My Honeycomb, failed to chart, but the follow-up, Lost in France, put her over the top, getting to number nine for two weeks in November of 1976. 
The single after next, It's a Heartache, did even better, getting to number four for two weeks in 1978. But after the title track to the Jackie Collins Grot Fest, The World is Full of Married Men, got to number 35 in July of 1979, she dropped off the radar after notching up six flop singles on the bounce. However, in 1982, when her deal with RCA ran out, she was picked up by CBS and invited to pick out the producer of her choice for her forthcoming LP. She was offered Phil Collins, Jeff Lynne and Cliff's producer Alan Tarner, but knocked them all back for her first choice, Jim Steinman, who was looking for someone to work with after falling out with Meatloaf. Whilst not wanting to work with Tyler at first, who up to that point was seen as a country rock singer, he changed his mind after hearing her new demos of rockier material and invited her over to New York to bulldoze her Welsh rasp over a few songs, including this one, which he had originally written for Meatloaf but was going spare when Meatloaf's label refused to pay for them. It was put out in February of this year, her first single in the UK since Sayonara Tokyo in 1981, which failed to chart. And after coming in at number 49, it soared 35 places to number 14, then soared again to number 2, and then shoved Billie Jean out of the way to roar triumphantly at number 1 in March of this year. Here's the video, which was shot in Holloway Santorium by Russell Mukahi, who's done the video for I'm Stranded by the Saints, Video Killed the Radio Star for the Buggles, Making Plans for Nigel for XTC, Vienna for Ultravox, and all of Duran Duran and Spandar Bally's videos so far. Oh, and what a video it is too. Man alive. It's... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you just want to you just want to hug yourself with glee don't you i mean there's so much here we could do an mm. entire po- i mean, just where even to start with it really well it's essentially bonnie tyler's boarding school for men who appear in this sort of video isn't it yes yes it is it's oh, fucking hell it's it's so perfect like how how perfect is the video for the song and vice versa mm. it's just amazing the thing is that it, it kind of has it's like a pastiche of of a perfume ad, mm. but delivered with that same absolute deadly seriousness that makes it hilarious. Yeah, there's no there there is not a wink anywhere. There's not like a hint of irony, and it's just glorious. And you know, Russell Russell Mulcahy, who is uh, Australian, and um, so that that gives you an idea of his his um, mm. where his head is at. Um, and yeah, before this, he did um, his first feature. He did Highlander. Was, was a feature of his in the 80s. But before that, he did Derek and Clive Get the Horn. <laughs> oh, right. <laughs> so there's not much of that in here, but it's maybe sort of peeping around, lewdly around the edges. But mm. so people complain about this, always somebody complaining at this time of year about uh, about fragrance ads, and they are preposterous. Mm. But I don't know what people expect of them. I love them. <laughs> there is a thing about them, and I love how daft they are. I I lament actually that the some of them actually now are quite boring and quite yeah. kind of standard and sexy and you know kind of not very imaginative mm. but they're supposed to be like perfume adverts are, are like very heightened disconnected flashes of fantasy which i'm assuming is supposed to like evoke the storm of pheromones that is meant to rage in your brain when you smell an expensive designer whiff mm. you know they are meant to be sort of 
weird little audiovisual sexy dream sequences like yeah. like just a sort of gorgeous jumble of fleeting images that are like faintly recognizable but just out of reach and that's that's basically what this is so the video for for total eclipse of the heart it feels wrong i don't feel like you can really talk you you can't really express it in full sentences <laughs> it's an extremely expensive kind of surreal stream of consciousness immersive theater production with out structure or thesis at all mm. um basically the treatment for it must have looked like this window fan candle moon decanter shiver <laughs> doors doves lads throne right now, wings swimmers, goggles church ninjas wind wine toss darkness Eyes, fences, shadow, greasers, stairs, doors, light, hair, cleavage, chiffon, leaping, NFL, balcony, tablecloth, running, plaza, thighs, Rambo, and then... Flying choir boy of the corn, goth Bugsy Malone, sumo pants, feather arms, man, fade to black. And then! <laughs> then after all of that, there is a daylight coda, which is not shown on this episode, but I had to do my due diligence and do the entire thing. Um, it's, it's, only, it's only right and proper. Yeah. There's a sort of graduation ceremony at the end after all of right. that. Um, and Bonnie is there in a suit. She looks great. Um, she sort of looks like a cross between Princess Di and Alison Goldfrapp right. in this video, which is which is an excellent look. Mm. Um, and obviously with the requisite enormous hair. So, and then she's kind of presenting. There's a sort of graduation ceremony for this sort of public school sex cult that has just been <laughs> exposed. And yeah, it turns out that it wasn't just a dream, and and the boys are actually weird <laughs> and and then that's somehow the end of it and it's just the greatest fucking thing <laughs> when we start doing live shows for chart music you're performing that as slam poetry <laughs> <laughs> i wish i loved this video as much as i loved that it's, i wish i loved this video as much as i loved the record like because mm. look to me like as as well as being a karaoke classic for oh, yes. ladies with more Prosecco than sense most of the time. Yes. This is a genuinely magnificent pop record, and in part because of its monumental grossness and lack of good taste. But people are weird about any kind of wit or self-awareness in otherwise serious mm. pop songs, right? Like, you have to be either wholly solemn or simply comic, or else somehow it's like mixing curry and custard, you know, and often it is, mm. but not necessarily. That just happens to often be the case. But it's perfectly possible to set up a an effective and convincing contrast between uh, a heavy effect and a lightness of touch. It's just hard to do. Mm. And if you do do it, just remember you're not going to top Jim Steinman. No. Um, like I don't think there's a, a songwriter on earth who could have written a song about aging and memory and impermanence and time speeding up as you get older and then call it 
objects in the rearview mirror may appear closer <laughs> than they are. So what this record does is create something epic and emotional and genuinely moving, and then it presents it in a way that says explicitly, this is not art, right? Whatever this is, it's not fucking art, all right? Just enjoy it. Mm. And that sounds quite conceptual, like to the point where you think maybe people wouldn't quite know what to make of that approach. But in fact, they do. They love it Mm. because you get the power of, you know, serious work without that tang of elitism. Yeah. And, I mean, clearly this record scores lower than the ring cycle, you know, for complexity and musical sophistication. But it's not far off in terms of gut response, you know. Mm. And some people... Some people work very hard and they they don't have a lot of time. Um, But what I'm not keen about with the video is I think it gets the balance wrong between camp and genuine feeling, you know. Mm. It's like like Jim Steinman's great talent is for writing and producing these songs which are funny without being a joke and which are huge and bombastic without just coming across like a 2P Beethoven. You know what I mean? Mm. Like thunder-faced and clenching his fist in a storm. <laughs> it's like, but what I don't like here, it's like it's almost like Bonnie Tyler came in and gave a perfect performance, like Meatloaf always did. Um, self-consciously bombastic, but not smugly bombastic, and with real feeling. And I just feel like this video reduces it all to a bit of a joke. Mm. I mean, it's entertaining to watch in itself, but what it does to the record, I don't think is a favour. Do you know what I mean? Mm. But what's the alternative? It's, if it's just Bonnie Tyler standing in some dry ice, yeah. you know what I mean? I know, okay, this is this is better than that. Mm. Yeah, it's a bit full on for our past three on Christmas afternoon, isn't it? When, <laughs> yeah. When you're not always trying to get to sleep. <laughs> I remember the, I, I do actually remember from, from this time, I remember the song better than the video. Like the video was, you know, mm. watching the video afresh, it was just like, what, what, what? Yeah, I've totally forgotten about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How could I forget this? <laughs> no, it is amazing. But yes, no, it, it it is really obviously like the the song is is is. Uh, I I do think they they go together brilliantly in a certain way, but um, but also it's the the song kind of out you know does outclass the video. Obviously, um, it's a, but the, I mean mm. the song is mad, obviously because it's Jim Steinman who is a man who threw his last fuck that he had to give into a volcano. <laughs> Many years before, <laughs> like all of his stuff, it should not work at all. It's, it, I mean, it's relatively tight for him at, at only five and a half minutes. Um, but it kind of, you think it's finished, and then it just carries on and on and on. It's, it's like it reaches a crescendo, and then it just carries on crescendoing over and over. Yeah. There's a middle eight, but it's not. It's a middle nine, and that's the bridge. Yeah, and then the actual middle eight is a middle sixteen, and sounds like fucking Procol Harum or something. It yeah, it's mad. What the fuck is he doing? And it, it's it's wonderful. It's very very odd, but there is a sense of romance, and it's more in the sound of it than it is in the words themselves. That note that she's and we're lonely. That bit. If you don't sing along with that bit, then you are fucking sober and you need to have a drink mm. um it's it's a really powerful and exalting moment in pop music and you know this uh the, her voice that I, it was basically bonnie tyler's voice came about because she had to have throat surgery and then she was supposed to 
because she was supposed to shut the fuck up for like three days and just couldn't do it. <laughs> and so she just oh, had too much. She had too much to say for herself, and yeah, I respect that. I really do. What a profitable mistake. <laughs> but, like, but she talks like that. So it's like, let me see her interview. She's just got, you know, she's, uh, she sounds like a bear, um, yes, a cartoon yeah. bear, but in a really good way. Um, the, yes. the history of this song is also absolutely wild. Yeah. It's wild. So basically Jim Steinman uh, kind of dusted this off for Bonnie Tyler, having written it for um, a vampire musical. Mm. So it was originally called Vampires in Love. It was written for um, Steinman's Nosferatu musical, Dance of the Vampires. Mm. There's this entire insane story about this musical, about this, this broad, it's a Broadway musical. It cost an immense amount of money and it was a huge flop. It was based on a musical that was based on Roman Polanski's sort of cheeky vampire movie. It went ahead in 2002. It went on Broadway in 2002. lasted six weeks and lost $12 million and destroyed Michael Oof, Crawford's wow. career. No. <laughs> There's a whole load of people who never even saw it, but they're giant fans of it anyway. It's like a whole internet thing. And the internet was partly responsible huh. for destroying it in the first place because apparently it just ballooned into this giant kind of too many cooks nightmare. Michael Crawford had so mm. many weird fucking ideas and would not be told no. He was he, oh. so Michael Crawford was fucking impossible. Turned the main character, the main vampire Dracula guy, into a sort of Italian clown, like a Piero, and he insisted <laughs> on dying on stage, even though that would make the whole story not work. It was just a total shit to everyone. Yeah, also what also didn't work is the bit where he insisted the vampire should be dragged along behind a bus <laughs> on roller skates. <laughs> <laughs> But there's this entire, there's like a long read on uh, Vulture, which uh, details, it's they, they did this thing, uh, Five Days of Flops, where they just did, did deep dives into what went wrong with these massive, expensive shows. And mm. it just says how it, how it failed. Um, so it's clashing egos and disintegrating relationships and competing visions and ballooning budgets and a ruined script. Um, it had, it, it's, it's incredible. You can just pick any sentence out of it. It had electric boots, a rocket coffin, hordes of robot rats, <laughs> an animatronic bat that costs more than a Mercedes, and a flying Ooh. graveyard. What? So that's the thing. Okay, the, the, the thing that I love about this video... For yeah, by those Christmas. standards, this, this is quite a normal sober <laughs> interpretation, isn't it? It's, it's almost like a sketch for the most absurd musical of all time. And it's more, yeah. I would say, it's more of an artistic success at a fraction of the price. Yeah. But also this musical was was kind of, um, it's a terrible example of, of what is a real problem now, which is the corrosive effect of internet opinion on art in real time. Mm. Because while they were making it and they were desperate to figure out what had gone wrong with it because people just didn't like it. And there were meetings where they printed out pages from online forums where people had liked it off and were reading out the criticisms in rehearsals. Ugh. It's a nightmare, but it's one of those oh. really enjoyable nightmares. Oh, but if you had to think of the worst thing anyone could possibly do in terms of <laughs> creative development and working out what was actually wrong with something... Tell you what, why don't we read millions of people we don't know, mm. some of whom don't even care what yeah. they're saying, yeah. to saying that we're <laughs> That's going to be great. That's going to help us a lot. Uh, I mean, read that to Michael Crawford, obviously, because it sounds like he really was a massive cunt. Just like oh. if, if someone else did a line and it worked, he would ask for it to be cut out. No. <laughs> what a fucker. 
<laughs> so yeah. yeah, real team. <laughs> so I'm glad that out of that wreckage, we got you know we got total eclipse of the heart, and we got yes that article which I really encourage you to look up. It's 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 a wild ride. Oh, I was surprised that I got relatively little to say about this record, mm. considering how much I love it. Yeah. Uh, but it's almost like this isn't a record to talk about no. or discuss. You know what I mean? It's like a magic trick. Uh, <laughs> you just you can talk about it if you want, but it, it sort of spoils it. Because like I can see, as we've been talking about, I can see how it's done and uh, why it works so well. Mm. But, you know, it's... Uh, who cares? Yeah, yeah. You know, it's it's still total eclipse of the heart, and it always it sounds great all the time, and it sounds a hundred times better if you're drunk. <laughs> you know, it's just it's it's total eclipse of the heart. And we've got to give a shout out to Rory Dodd as well, who's the the turnaround man. Ah, oh, yes, he never gets any credit. He does. He he was Jim Steinman's go to voice. He, he did loads. I of, thought uh, you were going to say Jim Steinman's gimp, like <laughs> Jim no. Steinman. Bring out the gimp, Jim. <laughs> he did loads of backing singers for all Meatloaf stuff, but he was best known to the pop craze youngsters as singing the uh, the jingle on the advert for Hungry Hungry Hippos. Oh, bless him! And he, d- does he appear in the video? Oh, who knows? I mean, he might be one of the fencers or one of the ninjas or one of the NFL guys. <laughs> yeah. There's a lot of guys in this. I mean, there's yes. a lot of, I'm really, I mean, pound Hunks. for pound, there's a lot of professional dancers in this. I know that, um, you know, the, the era of zoo is now over, but there's so many professional dancers mm. in massive numbers in this, uh, massive troops. Oh, can you imagine if zoo wankers were in this video? Fucking hell. <laughs> Smiling and... Yeah. Brassy stepping. Yeah, doing calisthenics on the spot. Yeah. With a big fixed grin. Yeah. <laughs> Good to see the Bullingdon Club on it as well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I feel like there's a warning buried in there somewhere. Yeah. You know the sort of like, there are stories about pop stars that are like, that makes me think better of them, or that's that's not what I would have thought. And then there's the other ones where it's like, yeah, that's completely in line with what I would imagine. Um, my bloke, again, doing uh, backstage shenanigans, was at a free council festival on Plymouth Ho in uh, in the late 90s. And Bonnie Tyler was one of the turns. Yeah. And um, this is before backstage right. became like, you know, the, the kind of ridiculous thing that it is now. And uh, she Bonnie Tyler was there with a... A very browbeaten PA, who is sort of a Lynn, sort of a younger Lynn. Right. And um, she had her own portaloo, uh, you know, reserved for Miss, or I don't know if it was Miss or Ms. Tyler. No. Divas, it's always Miss, isn't it? Yeah. This, this one here is reserved to Miss Tyler. Of course she should have her own portaloo. That's fair enough. But also, but not just that, but she would send her PA in beforehand um, to sort of Tyler-proof it. Right. And, um, which may or may not... Um, have involved warming the seat. No! After the manner of a public school fag. No! <laughs> Fucking it's hell. It's pretty nippy. Mm. Plymouth Ho at night is is, uh, is a slightly unforgiving place, so, you know. Right. Go have a warm bum before you go on. <laughs> after you come off. Imagine if they hired you to do that and you were also the bloke who used to blow cocaine up Stevie Nicks' arm. <laughs> so, Total Eclipse of the Heart spent two weeks at number one before giving way to a single we're going to be seeing very soon. The follow-up, Faster Than the Speed of Night, would only get to number 43 in May, and the follow-up to that, Have You Ever Seen the Rain, only got to number 47 in July, but as we've already pointed out, she has signed the Pact of 
Cole with Comrade Shaker, and we'll be back in the top ten very soon. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. It's an S-Pod thing. The podcast revisiting S Club 7's insane TV show. Yeah, I can't imagine anyone's binge watched this. Anyone who's not on drugs. <laughs> Thank you for bringing this into my life. Uh, it was honestly <laughs> truly appalling. Guests help me analyse the show in more detail than anyone ever asked for. It feels weird to me to say the phrase "sex object" in a show that <laughs> was aimed at six-year-olds. Do you think? Do you think this is one of the problems of the show is that seven is too much? It's an S Pod thing from Great Big Owl. <laughs> for three weeks in this country and then Bonnie Tyler took the song over to the States along with that video and she did really well because she got to number one in America as well on a Christmas afternoon with Top of the Pops here's the Eurythmics and sweet chicken to pay the best Wearing his usual supply teacher rig out, but complimented with a tinsel lay and a bit of tinsel peeping out of his breast pocket, reminds us that it's Christmas afternoon and pivots to the next song, Sweet Dreams Are Made Of This, by the Eurythmics. Formed in a hotel room in Wagga Wagga, New South Wales in 1980, Eurythmics consisted of Dave Stewart and Annie Lennox, the then guitarist and vocalist of The Tourists, who had scored two top ten hits with I Only Want To Be With You and So Good To Be Back Home Again in the Aventis, and were touring Australia, but were clearly on their last legs. After naming themselves after a musical education method developed by the Swiss composer Emile Jacques Delcroze at the turn of the century, they immediately signed to RCA and recorded their first LP, In the Garden, in Cologne. With the assistance of Holger Zuke and Jackie Liebsight of Cannes, Clem Burke of Blonde and Robert Gall of Deutsch Amerikanisch Freundschaft. Their debut single, Never Gonna Cry Again, got to number 63 for two weeks in July of 1981, but top 40 success would continue to elude them until they put out their second LP, Sweet Dreams Are Made Of This, in January of this year. This is the title track and their sixth single. <laughs> 
The duo were insistent they'd be put out as a follow-up to Love is a Stranger, which got to number 54 in December of 1982, but RCA were having none of it as it didn't have a proper chorus or anything until it was picked up and played to death by a radio station in Cleveland uh, in America, not in the Northeast. It slipped into the top 10 at number 38 in February, then soared 17 places to number 21, and then soared another 16 places to number 5, and two weeks later, it made it to number 2, kept off the summit of Mount Pop by total eclipse of the heart. And here they are in the studio, and one of the kids goes absolutely fucking mental for this, doesn't it? Soon as Bates announces what he is, you can hear him going, <laughs> Not going to lie to you, ever since we started chart music, there's yeah. been one or two bands I've been dreading to cover simply because I just think and I go, I, I can't think of anything to say about them. And Eurythmics are one of those. I, 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 it feels like I've got zero opinion on them. They were, they were just there. So I immediately dismiss them out of hand, and then I go, oh, hang on, though. Who's that girl? Here comes the rain again. And, ooh, you know, I don't know whether I like them or not. I tell you what, they really are a band where you only need the singles, right? Right. Tr- trust me on that, because I've tried, you know. So, yeah, stuff like Beethoven, I Need a Man. I- I'd even stand up for There Must Be an Angel, Here Comes the Rain Again, Would I Lie to You? Um, and I, mm. I absolutely love... The single before and after Sweet Dreams, i.e. Love is a Stranger, um, mm. which I, I think is just, just sublime. Um, yeah, how the but, fuck did that not get into the top 40 on his first go? That's mad. Well, Eurythmics took their time. They, they had a flop album out before you know that, um, anything mm. happened for them. Um, I, I actually did like The Tourists. Um, I, yeah. I remember really enjoying their version of um, I Only Want to Be With You and also um, So Good to Be Back Home Again. Uh, yeah, that single by them. Uh, recently, um, I went on a bit of a mad cheap vinyl buying spree, and I picked up um, uh, all three of the albums by the Tourists. And I can tell you again, they're a band where you only need the singles. <laughs> to be honest, um, so yeah, it took them a while, and it's interesting because the template of the synth duo was pretty well established by the time yeah. they came along. Um, and what it usually involved, whether it was Sparks or, or Soft Cell or, or, or Yazoo, was you'd, you'd have this kind of enigmatic deadpan keyboardist and quite a sort of emotional, very human-sounding um, front man or woman. Um, mm. They sort of do fit that and they don't because Annie Lennox's voice leaves me cold as perhaps it is meant to, perhaps it's intended to, I'm not sure... But mm. her vocal mannerisms have the shape of soul music, but not the texture of it. Yeah. Um, yeah. She she does all these all these trills that she's obviously learned from listening to God knows how many kind of, I don't know, um, Minnie Ripperton or uh, Anne Peebles records, whatever it may have been. Um, yeah. But but it's it's very much almost as if she's um, trilling the notes from sheet music. Rather than, and I don't want to be one of these people who says, "Oh, you have got to feel it, man. You've Got to feel it from the heart." But it, it sort of is like that. It's 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 very much going through the motions of that, and that that's something I I always found a bit off putting about about you with Mitch, to be honest. Um, I think she's an important figure in eighties pop, uh, in that she was taking the reverse road of uh, androgyny to 
most of uh, the rest of the decade, we tended to applaud people in 80s pop for being androgynous in a male-to-female direction. Mm. Um, and she, I guess the only other, other one would have been Grace Jones, was taking things the other way. I guess in, yeah. in a previous era you had Patti Smith, but that's a slightly different thing, and, and she was kind of long gone by that point. So, mm. um, and, and Grace Jones didn't really start having big hits till a little bit later. So, so um, really, uh, she she was a bit of a lone figure, Annie Lennox, and I think an important one. And in, yeah. in some ways, being into her, being a fan of her, uh, became almost a, a, a sort of badge of honour among some people. People seemed to be making a point if they were into her. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? People would say, um, oh, well, I think Annie Lennox is beautiful. <laughs> and 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 if if you if you didn't agree or showed any kind of scepticism, oh well, you know, not really my type. They they huh, well, they, you know, they'd almost treat you as if you're some kind of medallion wearing nineteen seventies <laughs> unreconstructed sexist pig. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I'm just not into pegging. What's you know? What can I tell you? <laughs> Don't non kink shame me. Mm. But I mean, because at the time, not her. Possibly a label, but definitely the tabloids were saying, oh, she's Boy George with different bits. Right. And there was all these news stories like in America that, you know, that, that she got done Benny Hill style for, for going into a women's toilet and pulled out and all this kind of stuff. And you just think, well, no, because number one, she's obviously a woman. And number two, she's she's that woman out of the tourist. Yeah, do you know yeah. what? I didn't. I didn't recognise her as being from the tourists. It, uh, it must. Oh, have really? Been, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I just thought they were a new thing. I had no idea. It was just. Um, I didn't recognise him either. You know, even though he's quite. When you read in smashes at the time, Simon. I, uh, I, I must. I, I guess I must have found out pretty quickly. But mm. certainly, when I first heard this song, saw the video or whatever, um, mm. I, I didn't twig instantly. Put it that way. Yeah. See, what bothers me, for, really, from an artistic and spiritual point of view. Eurythmics are like the early 80s garbage. Do you know ah, what I mean? Ah, the group yeah, garbage, yeah. right? Old hands. Mm. It's that same feel of people building pop music rather than just creating it. You know, like yeah. old pros once removed, you know. And it's a, it's a bit annoying even when the music is okay. And it's enraging when the music's shit. So mm. at least a song like this which is good and makes a virtue of its origins in a kind of musical laboratory. Yeah. You know, it, it works. It survives that. But once you get to there must be an angel playing with my heart, which to me is a yeah. an unstoppable billowing cloud of poison gas um, <laughs> seeping out of Annie Lennox's mouth. Um, and you can't even write it off as an accident. You know, mm. they become one of the least likable bands of the 80s for me not one of the most hateable bands mm. just one of the least likable yeah you know and it's only in retrospect that we see Annie Lennox and Dave Stewart for what they really were because looking at this appearance if this was all new to you and you'd managed to forget the tourists um you would at least be intrigued mm. because this doesn't really sound fresh or or bright or spontaneous but it Sounds like it sounds like old pros, but it sounds like old pros trying to do something different and succeeding mm. for now. And I think Annie Lennox's problem is that she was sold as this icy, powerful Grace Jones type icon. Yeah. Um, when in fact the coldness that she projects is not really that same kind of glamorous 
natural, uh, authentically impressive strength like Grace Jones, you know, with power, yeah. power to sway. Um, it's more like a, a sourness and a smugness and just a lack of humanity mm. <laughs> or no, a lack of humor and self-awareness. Yeah. Um, but at this point, it's not a huge problem because not enough of her actual personality is visible and she's still singing on a good record. And you can see the smugness, but it looks like part of the act. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Um, yeah. Whereas as her real personality started to come out, she became less convincing in that role. I remember reading in Smash Hits about a festival, that, um, like a one-day festival in Ireland that Eurythmics played. It might have been a U2 gig or something. Mm. Um, and in the middle of their set the drunken crowd started chanting English bastards at them, which, you know, is inaccurate, <laughs> yeah. obviously. But Annie Lennox stopped the music, went up to the microphone and delivered what sounds like a hilariously pompous emotional speech about, quote, I cannot play to faces full of hate. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, you know, talk about bullseye for the trolls, you know. Um, and apparently this tirade went on until Dave Stewart walked over to her and said, loud enough to be picked up on the microphone, let's just play. Um, and the, what a scene, <laughs> what a scene to make. Uh, and the other thing that stuck in my mind as an example of Eurythmics, Lennox shit is um, also in Smash It's when they did one of those surveys of pop star opinion that they would do periodically. Mm. Um, and this one was about the royal family. Right. And I remember Annie Lennox saying, I'm British and I love my queen. Oh, uh, as though that followed naturally. Yeah. Right? As though the second followed naturally. And, you know, as if that were not already a fairly charged remark for a Scottish person to yeah. make. Mm. Um, and I've never forgiven Dave Stewart for his media mogul bullshit. And, uh, <laughs> you know, when he tried to... Uh, one of the few things I wrote in Melody Maker that still makes me laugh when I remember it was um, some record he'd done with someone and uh, when he was trying to be all cool... And I said, if he really wants to to reinvent himself as some kind of hip elder statesman of pop, why has he still got a beard? <laughs> My money's on an I am an old and sad man chin tattoo that he <laughs> desperately wants to keep covered up. Um, that media mogul bullshit, uh, of course, satirised brilliantly in Nathan Barley. Oh, yeah. Where he's the leader of the very phonics. Um, yeah, I can't remember his character's name in that. But yeah, it's um, transparently Dave Stewart. And um, I, uh, um, purely by accident, managed to puncture a bit of that pomposity once. Have I told you the story about when I met him? No. no. I Yeah, I, I met Dave Stewart um, in the late 80s, but didn't realise I'd met him until afterwards. Right? <laughs> what it was... Um, <laughs> I was I was uh, I was going out with a girl who uh, lived in Crouch End, so you can see where this is going already, um, mm. because uh, his his studio, the church, was was there in Crouch End, mm. and uh, it yeah. was only a few doors down from uh, um, where my girlfriend was was living, and uh, I remember just walking down the shops one day, and th- this guy comes out of the door of the church, and he's uh, walking almost sort of side by side, and uh, he's got this incredibly cool. Um, Prince t-shirt on it's like this sort of um, 
very kind of art arty sort of abstract impression of Prince's face that was like a whole print over the whole thing. And I just I really coveted it, and um, mm. I I had to ask him. I said, "Oh, where, where where'd you get that from?" And he said, "Um, New York, I think." And I thought, okay, I thought, oh, all right, this this guy's sort of you know, a bit of international traveller. Okay, fair enough. And uh, uh, we were sort of heading the same direction. Just talked about Prince uh, for for a minute or so. Uh, and uh, as as we went our separate ways, I, I said because uh, I I was thinking he, I, I recognise this guy like long hair, beard, a bit rock and roll. As we were parting, I, I said, uh, are you are you Peter Hook from New Order? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and he goes no. No, I'm not. <laughs> and it was it was only afterwards I thought, oh fuck, that's who it was. Yeah. And I was kind of pleased, you know. <laughs> yeah. At least you didn't have a go at him for um It's My Party. <laughs> Barbara yeah, Gaskin. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, he would have yeah. hated that. I'll yeah. tell you what else I don't understand about Eurythmics. Is their name a play on the word eugenics? And if so, how? No, there actually is a thing called Eurythmics. Oh. Um, I should have looked it up, but mm. it is some kind of esoteric discipline. Um, I can't remember what it involves exactly. No. Although I think they, they spell it differently. It involves ripping off your zoo, but with a clothing budget. <laughs> <laughs> because to me, this is the unweirdification of um, of synth duos. Yeah, and they only just got, got in under the wire. Um, I, I mm. suppose Pet Shop Boys were... The, uh, I suppose yeah, you could still get away with it because then Erasure came along as well. But Erasure mm. was basically um, the, the continuity Yazoo. So they they'd been knocking around a while. Eurythmics, uh, you know, only just sort of only just sort of made it before people got fed up with with synth duos. You know, yeah. Um, I mean, this this is a good record. There's there's no getting around it. Mm. That the underlying riff is powerful. It's kinetic. It's done in straight lines. It's very blocky in the way that um, synth records kind of have to be. You can with 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 a sort of with a soul record or something made organically you can have you can have curves to it things can um rise and fall and, and it it can be just just a bit more fluent um but this it's you you could almost uh, uh just sort of grab grab a paintbrush and just go up down up down with it and you'd have mm. drawn the riff of this song like Rolf Harris. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, exactly like Rolf Harris. In fact, now you mention it, Dave Stewart does look a little bit. But yeah, it's 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 a it's a really it's it's one of those good records that's kind of it you you have to acknowledge its place in history. Just like, you know, the way I, f- I feel about Heart of Glass by Blondie. Much to the derision of, of you guys, I've never been shouted down about this. That yeah, I acknowledge mm. it's a good and important record, but I find it hard to love. And it's it's the same mm. with this really. Um if yeah. I'm if I'm DJing um and it's, you know, sort of eighties theme or something like that, and you stick this on, people people love it. Um mm. there's a great mashup with um just dance by Lady Gaga, which really meshes well together with this. Um, right. I don't like the Marilyn Manson cover very much, but then I don't really like any of Marilyn Manson's covers. I just think no. they're, they're pointless. Uh, but yeah, it's it's um, it's it's in that category for me as a sort of a. I, I should probably shoot myself in the head for using this word, an iconic record of of the mm. era. Um, but it's not one that I feel any any warmth for at all. Do you remember when they got all leathered up and tried to get all raunchy? Yeah, what an embarrassment that was. <laughs> I mean, at heart, they are embarrassing cunts. I mean, no disrespect, <laughs> but it, they are. The thing, listening to a Eurythmics record, it's one of those things. 
I can't understand. Like, I listen to any Eurythmics record that isn't this one or Love is a Stranger, basically. It's like a three-hour car journey on a bank holiday <laughs> to go and see the world's largest pencil. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's not the worst thing you could ever do, mm. but why would you? It's like the, yeah. What sums them up, right? I was reading the Christmas 1983 uh, TV Times in preparation for this. <laughs> Good lad. Useful well done. But there's a pop section which is all written in that creepy old-fashioned prose, right, right, with a reading age of seven, like the TV Times used to do. Mm. And there's a brief bit about, quote, that spectacular pop duo, Eurythmics, mm. who have recently converted a disused church in North London into a 24-track recording studio. Uh, and Annie Lennox is quoted as saying, we have a resident ghost but I think he likes music. And that's an illustration of why I dislike and distrust Eurythmics. They're precisely the kind of band that would buy a church in North London, convert it into a 24-track recording studio, then lie to the TV Times that there was a ghost in it. Or worse, actually believe that themselves. Because they're all business, but with a, a sort of side order of unexamined bullshit mm. that they think makes them seem interesting in lieu of anything genuinely peculiar about the music or about their personalities. Yeah, you know? yeah so in the video for this, where she's in a field yeah. wearing a business suit, there's a, there's a cow in a field and she's... Uh, uh, and I'm not making I'm not making a joke here. There is literally a cow, and then there's Annie Lennox. Uh, I think in in leather gloves, um, yeah. wearing a business suit. That's how I remember it. Yeah. Uh, that that whole corporate thing, that corporate look. It it wasn't a. I mean, you know, it wasn't a, a, a subversion of uh, corporate culture. It was just straight up. Yeah, this is what we are. Mm. I suppose. Yeah. 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 And then the cow goes and sees them in the uh, office and pisses all over the carpet. Apparently. The cow's like, at least Pink Floyd gave me royalties. Man. Yes. <laughs> yeah. That's my fucking mate you're wearing on your hands, you bitch. <laughs> Speaking of ghosts, by the way, in their studio, I was thinking the other day, right, how brilliant would it be if ghosts did actually exist and finally, for the first time ever, someone captured actual convincing evidence of a, of a supernatural manifestation, mm. but... It was on their homemade sex tape, so they couldn't show it to anyone. Right. And they'd be there going, no, honestly, I promise you, take my word for it. There's some hideous, foul bloke getting noshed off like by, well, by not his hideous, fat old wife, hence why he can't show anyone. And he's got the telly on really loud, like you often get like mystifying yes. in those videos. And suddenly, through the bare wall behind them, uh, walks uh, a ghostly phalanx of Roman centurions, uh, or the disapproving spirit of the house's previous occupant, who who was John Holmes. <laughs> you guys yeah. are a disgrace. Yeah, or Timothy Claypole. Yeah, <laughs> how frustrating <laughs> would that be, though? What a loss to the scientific community and a spoiled wank. Yeah, yeah. I, you could put it out and call it Ghost Crotch. <laughs> <laughs> The performance of this uh, interests me because um, obviously it's a very stern record. Um, and if they've shown the video, it's a very stern video. But here we are. It's the Christmas Top of the Pops. Um, the band themselves, the only little, well, the duo themselves, uh, in the little space that they're afforded, are um, mm. they're sort of uh, ankle deep in, in dry ice, fair enough, to create a bit of mystique around yeah. themselves. But all around the back of them, there are 
the you know uh, top of the pops kids with balloons sweat swaying yes. from side to side waving their balloons yeah. and Annie Lennox um rather than trying to sort of outstern them and think I'm not having any part in this she starts no. dancing <laughs> And she's a really, I'm sorry, but she's a really bad dancer. And yes. It's just this kind of unseemly lukewarm thing between, you know, the, the uh, Christmas cheer, the kind of, the kind of mulled wine of, of the, uh, of the audience and the, and the kind of icy vodka of what the Eurythmics are trying to put across. Yeah. 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 yeah she's a, a headmistress basically, isn't she? Yeah. Uh, her sort of stern, powerful facade is that of a headmistress. Yeah. So, the follow-up, a re-release of Love is a Stranger, got to number six in April, and they'd have two more top ten hits this year with Who's That Girl and Right By Your Side. Sweet Dreams Are Made of This would get to number one for one week in America in September, finishing the foul eight-week reign of every breath you take by the police, before giving way to Maniac by Michael Sembello. Hey. Every breath you take is not on this episode. Yes! Dancing's been in in a really big way this year. In fact, there's been loads and loads of movies about dancing. Do you and me fancy breaking? Yeah, you bet. Right, we'll do it to Irene Cara and Flashdance. Janice, on the balcony tells us that we've all been dancing fools this year with loads of films about it and then turns right into the face of a zoo wanker with a red rubber top and asks if he wants to break with her. You bet, he replies, and she says they're going to do it to flash dance <laughs> What a Feeling by Irene Cara. Born in the Bronx in 1959, Irene Escalera appeared on the American kids' educational show The Electric Company at the age of 12. After spending her early teens appearing in assorted on- and off-Broadway shows and TV movies and miniseries, she was cast as a dancer called Coco Hernandez in the 1980 Alan Parker movie Fame. But when the producers heard her sing, they rewrote the role and bumped her up to star billing, giving her the title track and the song Out Here On My Own Tonight. Both songs were nominated for the Best Song Oscar in 1981, making her the first person ever to sing two songs at the Oscars. And fame won. When the film was turned into a TV show, she was re-offered the role of Coco, but turned it down to concentrate on her singing career. But when the show became a massive success in the UK, her version was re-released, getting to number one for three weeks. This song... The title track from the Jennifer Beale leotard exploitation film Flashdance is the follow-up to Out Here on My Own Tonight, which got to number 58 in September of 1982. It was originally an instrumental written by Giorgio Moroder and was originally knocked back by Cora, who didn't want to work with Giorgio as she was worried about people drawing comparisons with her and Donna Summer. But she relented when she was invited to co-write the lyrics with Moroder's in-house drummer Keith Forsey, which the two of them knocked out during a car journey to the studio. 
After Flashdance became a surprise hit, the single entered the charts at number 30, then soared 21 places to number 9, then took four weeks to slither up the charts until it got to number 2 in July, kept off the top spot by Baby Jane by Rod Stewart. And here's an advert for the film. Oops, sorry, I mean the video. (laughs) Neil, back you come in, mate. This is a film I've not seen. So first question, is, is the film as shit as it looks on the video? Because <laughs> it appears to be about a woman who bombs about on a bike, then does some welding, then does some ice skating, and then dances for a bit, but mainly runs about and runs about and runs about. And the only time the woman has a sit down is so she can tip a bucket of water over herself. Well, that synopsis... And be all sensual. That synopsis should go on IMDb, really, right now. I mean, that is pretty much what it is. Um, It's not a great film. I mean, I I remember when me and Taylor were last on Chart Music, and we were talking about Saturday Night Fever and and the Mm. the influence that exerted in as much as, you know, the following decade saw a lot of dancicles, as we called them. Um, Yes. But Flashdance earmarks something different in that trend, in a sense. Even as late as a film like, I don't know, All That Jazz, dancicles could be messy films they could be complex films they could be adult films and they could be about luck and chance and cruelty but things like yeah. flash dance they really owe more to that to fame basically fame is the is the yes. behemoth that affects a film like flash dance and that idea that you know simply working hard paying with sweat you know will get mm. you places and the only possible barriers to you achieving anything are your own limitations it's a very thatcherite reaganite tebbit like view of creativity that's cemented yes in the film she gets on a bike in well, quite literally but i mean it, it it's one of those the first of those types of films i think to show a massive mtv influence really you yeah. know if mtv had come on air in august 81 by late 83 i mean it's already having massive impacts on the charts but i think it's also having impacts on cinema flash dance is basically it's Rocky with better leg warmers yeah. and more thongs. Yes. It was um, Rocky with dancing instead of hitting people. Basically, yeah. Basically. I think I'd rather watch the Irish RM. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, the cinematic style of it, of flash dance, yeah, it's pure cocaine dust. It's all dry ice, big hair, shown in backlit silhouette. Mm. And the editing of the film is totally dominated by the soundtrack. Half the movie is just musical montages. Right. And the look and feel of it is very, very Brat Pack. It's very close, really, to 80s action cinema. No coincidence, you know, that Don Simpson and Jerry Bruckheimer are the, are the producers mm. of the film. And um, it's a monster hit, though. That's the thing with Flashdance. I think it cost $7 million and, it, and it made $200 million yeah. behind only Return of the Jedi in terms of endearment in 83. Oof. It makes the careers of people like Don, Don Simpson and Jerry Bruckheimer and, and the director, Adrian Lynn, who, who goes from, you know, doing adverts back in the 70s to doing this, mm. his first feature film, makes him... You know, it's mad who was offered this film first, though. I mean, Mm. Simpson and Bruckheimer were thinking of David Cronenberg at first. (laughs) Imagine that. Um, Well, I can't imagine that. Brian De Palma turned it down as well. Flashdance really made Adrian Lynn a a star, and he spends the next few years essentially, you know, making crap erotic thrillers, as they used to be called. Mm. But it's huge. I mean, that soundtrack album to Flashdance, it it knocks Thriller off the top spot um, in the US for one week. It, it, you know, but but the thing is, the singers of all of this stuff, it doesn't launch their careers in any way. Irene Cara, who's not, she's not the star of the film, Jennifer Beals is, but, 
you know, this song is the star of the film in a sense. It plays in the opening. It plays, um, you know, in this montage that sets up Jennifer Beale's character. And when she dances at the... Um, the snooty Pittsburgh Conservatory of Dance um, <laughs> later on, which is also featured in the film. Oh, but stuffed be- shirts. Yeah, snotty bastards. Uh, the City <laughs> Fathers, as it were. But but because the movie's whole aesthetic is so close to music videos already, that's why we get this kind of video, which features no Irene Cara at all. It's just nothing no. but, but cut-together scenes from the movie, which could play just fine on MTV and help promote Flashdance. Yeah. It's really a Maroda record, and it's very akin to his soundtrack work for Scarface, actually. This is kind of where, in a sense, disco ends up. You've got, you know, you've got a keyboardist from Silver Convention on this, and you've got people who have worked with Donna Summer and stuff um, co-writing it. But crucially, this record, what happens to disco in records like this, is that it just stops having anything to do with black pop. This doesn't really come from soul or R&B. It comes no. from Broadway this yes. record you know it's it's one of those types of records lyrically Kara sells it stuff like you know take your passion and make it happen Ugh. it's kind of self-help type shit she sells it pretty well the lyrics are mainly that kind of self-help gibberish you know all alone i have cried silent tears made of pride <laughs> right okay in a world made of steel made of stone the only other person who could have done it really probably was donna summer i thought this was donna summer when it first came out yeah That's like a strap line for the film, isn't it? Like, in a world made of steel, dot, dot, dot. And then at the bottom it says, dot, 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 she was dancing for her life. Yes. (laughs) Christ. Yeah, it's that kind of film. There's a sense of ensemble in dancicles before these films like this. But films like this are very... Yeah, it's pure Reaganomics. It's, it, it's, yeah. 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 Get up off your bootstraps, go get yourself the stardom that is only denied to you because you've not been working hard enough. Yeah. But it's the, the whole, th- like, aesthetically, sonically, you know, visually and uh, philosophically, the mid-80s is here already. Mm, mm. I mean, you listen to this record and it's, yeah, it's descended from disco records, but really it's all pumped up. It's got, like, synth stabs and a load of hot air and vocal melismas and the big loping drum fills that go right along all mm. 15 mounted toms, you know, and <laughs> talk of passion and feeling, you know, it's begun. And this isn't the worst because it still sounds quite sort of thin and tooty in a way, mm. you know, in more than one sense. But it's <laughs> it's not good for you, this sort of thing. No. And the other thing that comes across really strongly, which is very mid-80s, is... This obsession with health and fitness, almost mm. for its own sake, mm. right? Mm. Like, I mean, mm. I I keep myself fit, but that's because at my age, it's kind of necessary. Yeah, if you know, to not just sit around smoking and eating cronuts and <laughs> seizing up if you try and get anything out of life. Oh. Yeah. Taylor, you take your passion and you make it happen. <laughs> yeah, but it's a moral imperative. Yeah. You know, it's training. Literally, it's training for. Uh, not dying yeah for life and and sex and late nights out and still being able to drink and Mm. be a mess and just not having to be an old man you know basically i don't enjoy it i wouldn't do it if i didn't have to when i was 22 you couldn't have got me near a fucking gym yeah but now i have to do it because the alternative is too grim 
for me yeah. in the face. And what I've always hated about this kind of stuff is the celebration of like soul destroying fitness work because it is right <laughs> like endlessly repeated physical drills yeah. which could actually mm. drive you insane but just for its own sake once every five or ten years i take a gym membership out because i just think oh you're a fat cunt <laughs> do something about it <laughs> i can only last at two weeks at most because it comes a point where i go hang on a minute this is like being in a factory but I'm not yeah. getting paid for it. Yeah, yeah. All mm. the drudgery mm. of factory work, none of the money to piss up the wall afterwards. Right, it's because it's all about what's on your headphones. Yeah. Whether you can get through it or not, basically. Yeah. Mm. But mm. I can listen to that stuff at home while I'm eating crisps. Well, yeah, this is true, yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> I take my passion, I'll fucking lob it in the bin. <laughs> but this stuff, it goes beyond that. It goes beyond being able to put up with the 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 factory-like misery of exercise. These are people who wear their their grey stretch cotton singlet with sport written on the front, <laughs> like when they're not working out, yeah. just because they think it looks good. <laughs> and the, the point is, the song talks about uh, a purpose at the end of all this, like the hit, right? Like the magical feeling. Yeah when you are transported by the dance, right? You mm, know, the, mm. the, the, the transcendent moment. Mm. But really, it's just like fame. Uh, in the way that fame is about fame, but it's not about, like, a reward or no. a recognition for doing something that you do well. It's about fame as a condition to aspire to, yeah, which will yeah. lend some meaning to your life, even as you clutter up other people's, you know. Wait till we get stuck into the kids from oh, fame. Can't oh, can't wait. <laughs> this is similar in that it's really, it's not really about dancing. It's about the sort of, the narcissism mm. and the, the the clutter around the topic, you know. Yeah. And they disguised yeah. it yeah. in both cases. They're giving it this sort of blue collar thing. Yes. Like it's about people fighting their way out of the, out of the ghetto, you know what I mean? Mm. And it's, it's not. It's just another toothy one climbing on the bus, you know, to Coca-Cola advert dream world. It's, it's, it's morning in America, yeah, you know, yeah, and yeah. all that shit. You know. The underlying message of both of those films, I mean, it, it, it is kind of, because like Jennifer Beale's character in, in Flashdance, she works in a steel mill, you know, she's got a pretty horrendous yeah. working <laughs> life. Um, but the message is, yeah, um, oh, you're not getting what you want out of life. That's because, yeah, you need another job. <laughs> and yeah. not change job yeah. you've got to keep both jobs and work doubly hard at both of them it's so mm, fucking yeah. right. the unbelievable thing is that this got to number three and this is shit I fucking hate this song it's a bag of wank but this got to number two and Maniac by Michael Sembello, which was a massive hit in America mm. only got to number 43 for two weeks that is insane oh. it's also on the soundtrack yeah. isn't it yeah Yes, yeah. I still hear that song all the time. It's one of those singles that you hear nowadays and it's treated like it was a massive hit, and it wasn't. Yeah. Yeah. It was yeah, a yeah. flop yeah. over here. Maniac. <laughs> <laughs> this is one of the few oases of satisfaction in this Christmas Top of the Pops, isn't it? Yeah, yeah but I, I would have preferred weird satisfaction if Cronenberg had directed it, man. I can't stop yes. thinking about it. <laughs> so flash dance what a feeling would spend six weeks at number one in america and would win the best song oscar the following year however the follow-up why me would only get to number 86 in december and irene cora never troubled the chart again (laughs) 
praise youngsters. We're going to leave it there and have a bit of trifle and whatnot. So make sure you join us for part four tomorrow. Stay safe. Stay the fuck away from folk. Stay pop crazed. And let's rock and roll. Sharp music. Pencil. An actor of my experience, you just get run dry. A podcast sitcom with Anna Crilly and Tony Gardner. I played, I played yeah. Edmund Gelder and he played Fanny Snatch. The Observer called it a lovely thing, wonderfully funny, pitched perfectly, produced with a light touch. I'm not having any more of this. I need you to pull me off immediately. Heavy Pencil from Great Big Owl. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.